confession. I'm ashamed that I may not have killed anyone in Vietnam. I'm ashamed that I may have killed someone. I'm proud that I was a Marine. I'm embarrassed to tell anyone that I was in the Marines. I grew up believing in God and country. In Vietnam, I lost my belief in God, and now I distrust anything my country tells me. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. We are off to New York State via Zoom today for our Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast conversation with Marine and Vietnam veteran Larry Winters. Hello, Larry. Hello, Bob. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Mike Orban is recording our session today. I'm Bob Bach, and I want to say hello to uh, our listeners, of course, and, and welcome you on board. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Larry has had uh, just uh, multiple life experiences, and in fact, he still is, and has been involved in numerous endeavors, is very active in a number of projects, and we're going to try to cover uh, really a lot of ground today, but probably best to get started, you live and grew up in New Paltz, New York, it's not a big place, Uh, 15,000 folks or so is what I saw, but uh, really a beautiful part of the country. Tell us just a little bit about growing up there. Yeah, um, New Paltz, I'm where I'm sitting exactly right now. I haven't moved. Uh, there have been times in my life when I went other places, but I've always returned. And my primary uh, place of living has been New Paltz. I grew up here during the Vietnam War when it first started. There's a university that's right in our town, SUNY a SUNY college that is blocks away from where I live right now. And that college had a lot of influence on the community that I was growing up in. Although when I was a senior in high school, well, when I was a junior, if you asked me where Vietnam was, I wouldn't be able to point it out on the map. And then when I became a senior, the the history professor took his pointer and snapped it against the map and woke all of us up to look and he says, Many of you are going to be going here. And that was the first time I figured out where Vietnam was. Up to that point, I didn't know much about the protesting and about what was going on. I didn't have a political perspective. That was New Paltz back in the early 60s, 70s. Uh, Let me clarify, SUNY, uh, an acronym for State University of New York, much like Wisconsin, there are campuses throughout the state. 
So uh, this is a fascinating story <laughs> and obviously an unforgettable one about the uh, instructor with the map. We can kind of just hear that slap of the stick or whatever it was that he used and what an awakening. So how did the Marines come into the picture? Well, truth be told is I wasn't getting along with my dad. I had actually moved out of my house at 16 because of the confrontation with him. I won't go into the whole story, but it is in my book if anybody's interested. But it was difficult being with him. And I figured that I needed to f become a man pretty quick if I was going to deal with dad. And I thought that would be the instant way to do that was to go to war and become a Marine. And uh, it's only taken the rest of my life to figure out how to become a man. Hmm. Was your dad or other family members in favor of your choice or, or against it? I didn't ask. I, you know, I, I kind of left the house, built a cabin with a friend in the, in the woods a short distance from where I lived and didn't, didn't go home. Once in a while, I showed up for dinner, but I didn't sleep there. I just sort of made myself absent. And then I signed up without asking them. They were shocked. What year was did you sign up and did you uh, start basic training? Late 1967, around October is when I went in. Where was that? Uh, I went in uh, in Albany is where I left to go to Paris Island. Mm -hmm. Paris Island, South Carolina, I, I think. Yeah, one of two uh, basic training bases for the Marines, the other in San Diego, California. What was basic training like? It was a wake-up for me. I had no forethought about what it was. We, had, My best friend and I had an older brother that had gone, and he, he made some rumblings about it, but we never registered it as being serious until we stepped on the yellow footprints when we got off the bus <laughs> and uh, realized that we had entered a world that we had no clue about. I have, I feel, I felt like boot camp was traumatic for me and, and everybody else I was, that was with me. I only live 90 miles from New York city, but for some reason we got a, half the bus was full of New York city kids. You mentioned that basic training was traumatic. Why was that? Was it the being taught or uh, indoctrinated into how to kill or being made aware perhaps for the first time that part of what you were going to be responsible for was hunting human beings? I mean, the, the things of being a soldier in combat. Is that what made it traumatic or was it the separation from home and some of these other uh, circumstances? It's a good question. And I, I, I would think that the majority of the weight weighs in the area of being psychologically broken down and physically broken down to a point where I had to begin to, I was taking in information that I, I probably would have just walked away from if I wasn't in those circumstances. And that was how to figure out not only how to kill somebody, but why to kill them. What were they, why were they worth killing? Uh, how did the Marine Corps make the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong worth killing? And they were good at that. 
I learned all the language that I had to have. I learned all the war stories from the BIs who had all been to Vietnam and came back with war stories, having their men killed in the battles. And uh, I uh, knew it was happening. In fact, I said to myself at some point, I got to write about this, which I, at that point, I would have never thought I would have wrote anything. I said, but I can feel what's happening to my mind. And it was turning dark. And um, I was just impressed with how I was influenced and how I, you know, we did things in the, in the squad bay where if we didn't, we had a thousand squat thrust to do and if we weren't if the guy next to us wasn't doing it we had to threaten him to the point where he would be frightened that he would be hurt if he didn't do it and there were things psychological things like that that were going on i wasn't that weren't in my life before that moment and that got reinstated over and over and over again in my training and the training was designed uh, from what i understand to create a togetherness that would be life-saving, literally, if you were part of the uh, cadre that went into combat uh, eventually in Vietnam. But now, 1967, how old were you, Larry? I was 19. So uh, I'm chuckling, but not because it's funny, because instead it's so overwhelming to think that a 19-year-old person uh, would be getting this dose of a reality that they had no prior knowledge of and yet still be able to function. I mean, and not be overwhelmed. I think that's rather stunning. Yeah. Well, there weren't a lot of options. If you saw someone overwhelmed, <laughs> then they got a, uh, they got a GI shower, which is, uh, which is taking, bars of soap and putting them in socks and dragging somebody at night once the taps are played and the lights go out and get them motivated. And I have to be, I have to say, I didn't get, I wasn't a victim of that, but I was a per perpetrator of it. And uh, I, I was involved because somebody who had a, their rack was close to me, listening to somebody crying uh, while they were being beaten is uh you know, that, 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 that this isn't just, well, that's, that's the story. <laughs> the uh, training continued. Uh, what ultimately then was your occupation and, and where were you trained and to do what? Well, I got, came out of boot camp and eventually wound up in Memphis, Tennessee. Because when I originally signed up, I signed up for the air wing. I had to pass a certain test to be able to become and I had to sign up for four years in order to get training in the air wing. So I thought the best I could do, the, the most insight I had in the time of my life was that perhaps I should try to get something out of this for myself, which would be educated to do something. And so I went into the air wing and I went to Memphis. And I was in Memphis when Martin Luther King was shot. Right. What a memory. They, mm -hmm. they put us on, uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, where you've got to stand on, stand between the protesters and the. Like a security detail kind of thing? Well, 
uh, riot control. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they started training us for riot control because they expected things to happen in, in Memphis. Thank God we didn't go there. Mm -hmm. But we, we got spit on by other Marines well, and humiliated and, and challenged to do something you know, or stand still. So what were you trained for in the air wing? I was trained in metalsmithing. That's what I did in Memphis. Uh, metalsmith on helicopters. So my MOS was a tinsmith. And I went into, I went from there eventually to New River, North Carolina, where there was a squadron. I was put in a, a squadron of CH-53s, which are the large cargo helicopters. And that's what I worked on. And that's that squadron shipped out of New River, the entire squadron, to Vietnam, which was unusual. Most uh, Marines went over as individuals and showed up there. I went over with everybody I knew and all the birds I knew. And when was that? This was in 69. Do you remember your feelings upon finding out that, in fact, this is going to happen, you are going to Vietnam, and uh, it's only a matter of hours or days before you do so? Well, what, what, what went on in New River while I was learning to work on these helicopters and listening to men that were returning who were mixing into our squadron? So we had a number of men that had already been there, and they were telling all kinds of war stories during that time. So I had some sense of where we were headed. And there were also lifers in our platoon that had been to Vietnam. And so we were, you know, we were getting informed by them. So I had some sense of what we were headed to. And um, at that point, I had already started to wake up that I wasn't really feeling I wanted to support this war. It wasn't really at the top of my list. To, I started to wake up to what I, the decision I made. How did that make you feel? That was a big challenge because I felt like leaving. And uh, at some point, I attempted to leave, but not from that place. You attempted to leave. You attempted to leave what your your uh, squadron? Yeah, I, I sort of hooked up with the dissident element, which were guys that, and there were a lot of them, guys that were not really excited about going, um, not really believing in the philosophy of what we were told. And so that started to, you know, develop in me. And when we got to San Diego with the, and we flew to San Diego in our choppers. Holy man. That, that was just the, the air crew guys. That's the rest of the guys flew out there with the uh, commercial planes. And we got on a ship in San Diego with all the, uh, the H -A, uh, HSS New Orleans which was a converted uh, battleship that they made into a, a helicopter landing pad. So we put 30 aircraft on that. And from San Diego, we went to Hawaii and then Okinawa and then to Vietnam. How long so did that trip take? That was about a month. Wow. But when we were in California, 
I rented a motorcycle with it with another guy, and we thought we were going to Baja. And so we got on, we didn't, it, it never became completely articulated. It was sort of in the wind. And we got farther and farther away from that marine base. And at some point we decided, let's keep going. He had a man on the back of the thing, there were three of us. I was on a motorcycle, small motorcycle. He came around a corner down in the Baja Desert, car cut in front of us. He ran head on into a barn with, with the guy on the back. And I fell down in the dirt in front of the barn. This guy had a compound on the back, had a compound leg fracture. And there were no cars, uh, you know, it took forever for cars to come by on us for to get an ambulance to come out. We must've sit there for four or five hours waiting. And they brought us all back to base and we got on the ship. <laughs> wow. And that was my launch. So I was very close to having made a life decision that would have made my life quite different. Well, and from the description of it, it, it sounds like that experience may not have necessarily been more difficult or worse than the experience of landing in Vietnam. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, you know, I think I would have gone in another direction. So you did ultimately get to Vietnam and tell us about that part of, of your career. Did you start flying on missions or how did that work? Well, I got there and of course we were all adjusting to it and fixing up the aircraft uh, so they could begin to, you know, go on missions. And um, so I spent the first, I was on perimeter guard I worked on night crew. We were getting hit with mortars. We I started in Fubai. That's where we first landed. About on the night of Tet, they had all the crew, the entire base was cleared out from Fubai and brought down to Marble Mountain. But I stayed behind on the base with about 30 other men on the night of Tet. This was out of fear over a possible attack, perhaps? Fubai is about two miles from Wei. Mm -hmm. And what went on the year before in Wei uh, was catastrophic. So I thought I was going to die there. And thank God they didn't do anything. I think there wasn't, you know, they knew we were going to be gone the next day, which we were. And then I went to Marble Mountain, which is in the vicinity of Da Nang. Mm -hmm. trying to see. Did you continue in the uh, mechanics role or did you begin to uh, be an active crewman aboard the ships themselves? At some point I became a, a helicopter gunner. I felt like, I don't know what prompted me to do it. I thought if I'm going to be here, I might as well see really what's going on. That's, so that's what I did for uh, about two or three months. I was mm -hmm. a helicopter gunner. And I saw I was flew in Cambodia. I was flying all over the place and uh, moving a lot of troops, hauling a lot of gear, hauling bulldozers because it's a big helicopter, landing on LZs all over the place, getting shot at, getting rockets fired at us. That was when I stepped fully into the war there. 
a, a CH-53 is like a trailer truck flying. That's the target it is. And I was on the metalsmith. So when I came in from working helicopter gunners, I helped to patch the bullet holes <laughs> fired at me. Mm. And we did things like you fly off with, with uh, detergent, napalm. Mm-hmm. We're flying with 55 gallon barrels of napalm. And the rule is you can't bring it back to base. Wow. So what do you do with it? You dump it. You get rid of it. So the pilot decides where we're going to get rid of it. So we're shoving napalm, 55-gallon barrels of napalm off on who knows who. You know, listening to your description, uh, an outsider looking in would think, I can see how somebody would do that one time because basically they didn't really know what the hell to expect. But after they've gone through it, either being fired at with a rocket, shot with the small arms, heard the sound of bullets penetrating the fabric of the helicopter, all of that stuff, it would seem to me that a person would say, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> but you weren't able to say that. So what I'm leading up to here is, how did you manage to continue to go on missions after the experience of what some of those first missions had introduced you to? Well, I have a, I have a poem that I'll, uh, maybe I'll read it because it begins to explain that. Good. It's called Confessions. This is, this is my book. Confession. I'm ashamed that I may not have killed anyone in Vietnam. I'm ashamed that I may have killed someone. I'm proud that I was a Marine. I'm embarrassed to tell anyone that I was in the Marines. I grew up believing in God and country. In Vietnam, I lost my belief in God, and now I distrust anything my country tells me. And that begins to describe the psychological, spiritual, emotional dichotomy that many veterans live with. I went in with the right intentions. I went in because I thought I was going to protect my country. Did I know about it very much? I didn't know much about it. But I can hear the Star Spangled Banner play right now, and the hair on my back of my neck will stick up. So... I got into a moral quandary around these issues. It still exists today. And so I can't really answer that question really well. Why did I keep doing? I did have something that happened after that. I was uh, put on perimeter guard duty because I was acting out in the uh, metal shop. I worked on night crew. And we were screwing around and I had the guys wrap my entire body in masking tape. And I walked around the hangar and then the, the staff sergeant who was in charge of our shop saw me doing it. And he put me on perimeter guard for 30 days. So <laughs> I, so, hope you, I hope he allowed you to get unwrapped first. <laughs> uh, so I got to stand in a tower and watch mortars come in and hit the base and I have to guard 
put claymores at the bottom of the tower and uh, spend all night out there working four-hour shifts on and off. And uh, at some point during that time on perimeter guard, they had a grunt that came in, probably somebody you know, <laughs> Bob. <laughs> he comes in, he's a corporal, I'm a lance corporal. There's about 20 of us. We're told to go, we have to do fire our weapons because we don't have weapons to walk around. We, we have weapons if we go, in a, we go out on a thing, but we go uh, on a mission, but we don't have any weapons in our hooches. And um, so we get on guard duty, we've got weapons, but we had to go fire our weapons. And so, we, you know, you go down to the beach, we go down to the beach and he's telling us to lock and load. And right in front of us are 30 sandpans, 100, 150 yards away. And he says, and he tells us to lock and load and fire, and he says, you can fire on those sandpans are too closer than they're supposed to be. Really? To the base. And I, I was, it's the first time I located something in me. I, I yelled, I said, I, we, we, there's people out there, they're not firing on us, they got no weapons. We're not gonna, don't do this, don't do it. And he continued to push us right on out to do it. And so I just fired in the sand in front of me, but I watched tracer rounds going out. And I know that people had to get hit on those sandpans. They were just there fishing. And there were children on that, on those sandpans. And uh, that was the first time I, I refused. But I never was able to believe I refused enough. There's a certain power in refusal, isn't there? I didn't feel it at all. I can tell you that. I felt that I should have turned around and, and put my gun on him. I should have done something else. I should have screamed louder. I should have made a louder protest. I should have done something. Because I, I was aware of what we were doing. And I didn't want to be part of it. Let me back up a second, Larry. Thank you. Uh, I want to say thanks for reading that poem, a powerful poem that does a marvelous job of detailing the opposites that um, veterans such as yourself have experienced. And uh, if I can interject my <clears throat> own experiences in here for just a moment, I, I, I'd love that, Bob. Well, <laughs> well, uh, the reason I'd, I love it is because I've, it feels like a one-way deal. Because I know I'm talking to you, but I also know that you've got life experience that this must rattle. <laughs> well, and it does. I, uh, uh, in fact, at the very start of the podcast, uh, Mike Orban and I did a couple of recordings about my experiences, and it was very therapeutic to speak about them. But it's remarkable to hear someone like yourself, and in the, in the format of a poem, describe some of the things that I too feel are right to my core, that sense of, of opposite um, levers at work and uh, pulling against each other, what have you. It, it bring, you mentioned that the poem was on the back of the book and the book of course is the one you wrote, the making and unmaking of a Marine. 
one man's struggle for forgiveness. When did you write that book? It took me uh, about 20 some years to even consider writing the book. So I would think it was 20 years. And then it took a good 10 years to write it. I went back to Vietnam in 1994. I was back home in 1970. Let's just take a look at that period uh, between 70 and, and 90, let's say. And I, was this a period when you were experiencing a high degree of upheaval and, and churn? And uh, tell me about the experiences you had after coming home from Vietnam and what they contributed ultimately to the writing of the book. Bob, what got stirred up in you when I read that poem? Well, I, as I said, it was that the, uh, the pulling in opposite directions that... Uh, well, that, that's some story that's connected to it, I assume. Well, actually, I think you really hit it on the head. I, too, feel uh, a certain pride... Uh, if I hear the Star Spangled Banner, but or even more than that, the Marine Corps hymn. Yeah. But at the same time that I'm feeling an element of pride, I'm feeling at least uh, some element of, um, and embarrassment's not the right word here, but some element of, uh, of guilt. You know, the, the words in the Star Spangled Banner and the words in the Marine Corps hymn are patriotic certainly, but they're they're um, quite motivating. Yet what they are motivating a 17 or 18 or 19 year old or 20 year old to do as they did in Vietnam, and I think uh, in my opinion in some subsequent wars is um, is actually a very harmful thing. So there's a lot of Difficult to answer questions. It's very hard to line up our experiences in a comfortable way. And um, from what you've described up to this point, from what I've heard from other veterans and, and myself, in some ways, life can be a long string of discomfort. The beauty of it is, is that there's hope. <laughs> there's hope on the other side. And there is uh, the trick is to try to uh, enter that that dimension and uh, make that the catalyst to living. So that, I, let me interrupt you because yeah. I want to say something about you. That and myself, the reason you and I are talking and we're talking about this. That's the beauty. Somebody else has to hear it. Somebody who could use it. Somebody who needs to be educated. Like we're not educating people who are put in these positions. And without reaching the point where you can speak about it, where you can articulate it, where you can be creative about it, no one listens. And in reality, very few people are going to listen to this. I was, I've done so many things putting out messages that don't get listened to. But I feel better having put them out there and done the best I can to try to get people to listen. That's all I can do. 
and it's helped me. And it may help one other person. And if it does, it's worth it. Well, and I will say this much about that. The, um, you never know who's listening. And you never know who among the listeners, uh, you never are quite certain of what they're hearing. Kind of two different things. And I, I only say that because I spent almost 40 years in broadcasting. And I'm only mentioning that because it's a long time to do anything. And I would be amazed uh, if someone would come up to me and tell me about a story uh, or the snippet, oftentimes the snippet from a story that I did from years and years before. And um, I thought, man, I haven't thought of that in decades. And here, this is something this individual not only listened to, but they, they truly heard whatever um, significance there was to that story. So uh, much like the podcast, it, it, Mike Orban and myself and others involved in this endeavor have been very pleasantly surprised at uh, the number of people that not only listen, but the things that they hear that we hear back. So take that as a expression of gratitude to you for uh, participating with us. Well, thank you. And at some point, oh, sure. I'll, I'll readdress this when we talk about intersections. Well, yeah, let me get back to um, uh, your return home and how you began to try to make sense of things. Or were you unable to make sense of much of anything, even the aspects of everyday life? I grew this beard, and between now and then, I shaved once. <laughs> that was the beginning. So I, I got away from looking like a Marine. I uh, started working. I went to school. And when I went to school, I was four years ahead of every freshman in the, the college class. And I went to a community college because school wasn't very interesting to me as a, as a student in high school. So I could go to the community college and I got VA uh, benefits. And literally there were people throwing spitballs in, in my freshman class. And there was me and one other veteran in the class that just had come out of, you know, come out of the war. And, uh, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take hanging out there. So I went and uh, I bought a taxi company. <laughs> Partner of my father had a friend who was elderly. He was getting out of it. I bought it from him. It wasn't a lot of money. And I ran a taxi company for about five years. Then I, and I, was not reflecting on much of anything. I was attempting to have a life. I got married before I got out of the Marines. I was really, I had two Marines come and live with me who had no place to go. They were friends of mine. They lived with me and my new wife for about six months to a year, which was, an, if I looked back at that now, it had to be insanity. <laughs> We would sit around, smoke dope, do whatever the hell we did, tr get drunk, trying to, you know, figure out how to adjust to where we just came from. 
Uh, and then eventually uh, I got out of the taxi company and I started selling real estate. I had a number of jobs. I don't have to go through the whole panoply of jobs I've had. But uh, at, always at the base, I was a carpenter. I grew up learning carpentry. And so eventually I turned out to be a carpenter and I was building houses. I was building high-end architecturally designed houses. And I had a partner who was an engineer who graduated from Columbia and we built houses together for a number of years. I had a child and I, I created some form of stability to be able to function, but I never addressed anything. And so I didn't really, my internal world was not functioning. I went to therapy also. I spent a lot of time in therapy. Talking and all, about uh, Vietnam? Yeah, no, 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 talking about parents. Oh. Almost exclusively about parents and almost nothing about Vietnam. I mean, it certainly knew where I was. But Vietnam, that, that was not part of the dialogue. Most of my official therapy that had been done was not a, had anything to do with the war. It had to do with how I was raised, which, you know, that needed some therapy. My father was not easy, easy guy to deal with. So did there come a time that the experiences from Vietnam pushed themselves front and center, became the focus of your thoughts? I mean, you just described how you're, you're getting along. Yeah. In my case, I got along too, but there came a point after roughly 20 years where I, I, I simply couldn't function anymore without confronting all of the static and the, um, the difficult feelings and emotions associated with Vietnam, it, it needed to be dealt with, but it took 20 years. Oh. So was it was similar in your case? Very similar to mine. That's the, the time frame was very similar. I decided finally at some point that I needed to go back to school. I'd always had an interest in psychotherapy and what that was about. And I read about it and I studied things on my own and I had an interest in it. And at some point I got invited to go to something called the Moreno Institute as a carpenter. The Moreno Institute uh, was an, a training center for psychodrama. J.L. Moreno was the inventor of a modality called psychodrama where you acted out life events on a stage with other, there's no audience. There are people that are participants, but everybody in the audience is a participant. It's like a group therapy is really what it is. And I began to train as a, use my GI bill to train as a psychotherapist doing psychodrama. And I enacted that story I told about the civilians, uh, shooting at the civilians on the, in the sandpans. And that was probably the turning point for me when I began to realize that I was a 19-year-old kid that really didn't know much of anything about life 
or about morality in any real way. And then I was beating the hell out of myself at that point as a 30-some-year-old. I was beating the 19-year-old in me for not having figured it out, not having done something different, not having woken up. And that was the first time I had a little bit of perspective that maybe, you know, at that age, I did what I could. Maybe it's taken all of this time and all the, all the trouble I've created in my life and all the people that care for me's lives for me to begin to wake up that I, there has to be some portion of self-forgiveness that comes in. And there has to be a way for me to reframe what I did instead of using it to beat myself with. That, I say, is the turning point. And that, I was probably, I had to be into my mid-30s. Mm-hmm. You know, just as an aside, um, and maybe I'm the only one that sees this, but I, I'm struck by the fact that carpentry is, of course, it's an artistic endeavor, as, and um, but it, it also requires absolute precision. I, uh, which is one reason why I forget it. I could do three sixteenths and five a. Oh man, are you kidding me? <laughs> Let's round it off. It'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> so, but anyway, my point is, is that carpentry can be a, a precise uh, profession. And yet therapy, it, it doesn't have that kind of precision, does it? It, 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 it causes your brain to a whole different part of your brain to go to work. Therapy, in, a, in, a, in one sense, is an art form. It, it is not a, you know, we, they, they create modalities, all kinds of different modalities that are used, thinking that the modality and the system of that modality is going to help people. But having worked in healthcare for so many years, what helps people is listening, kindness, and attention, particularly kindness, hmm. and trust. How do you create trust? So people will tell you what they need to. That really is a prime mover, isn't it? And all of that uh, is not part of the training in the way that we, the, the therapy we provide. We've got a managed care system which determines who comes in. And if you haven't tried to kill yourself or somebody else, you're not coming into the hospital. Nobody's paying for it. And so you get people coming into these systems that have to, have to, and, and the patients know this, they have to say something whether they feel it or not, in order to get treated. And if you come in, you're going to be put on meds, whether you need them or not, in order to stay there. Because you have clinicians that care enough that don't want to send somebody home that tried to kill themselves the night before. They'd rather give them some meds, even if they don't need them, to keep them there. And so there is a, there is a, I had to leave at some point because of that system, because I've woken up enough that Half the people there, for sure, are there because they want to be taken care of. They want to be listened to. They want to be safe. They want to have somebody hear what they have to say. It's it's remarkable to me to hear the way you describe 
what it looks to me like are two different things. One is you make the discovery that yes, uh, I'm in school and um, studying uh, therapy, et cetera, and counseling is, is good for me. That's, that's one thing. And at the other, and oh, by the way, I think I need to take a look at myself and begin to really get at some of these issues. I mean, it's two very, um, I don't know if, what are they? Are they parallel tracks there? But there's a separation between the two. One is very personal to you. And the other is the training that you're receiving to make this connection with other people to help them, perhaps some of them with the very same issues that you're facing. Yeah, you know, there were, it's an evolution. I'm, I haven't completed the evolution in the story. So I wasn't doing any treatment of anybody until I went and got a more formal degree. But I was in the process with a number of people learning things. And I chose those people carefully. Uh, it wasn't modalities I was necessarily choosing. It was whether or not I could trust the people that I was talking to. And it was, these are, these are not mostly mainstream things. What I, what I was referring to is sort of mainstream, your insurance company, what they will pay for you to get help. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of this I was paying for. I did exchanges with therapists that I thought I wanted to see. I'd go build something on their property in exchange for some treatment. And uh, I did a number, number kind of, different things that educated me in that way. And is therapy, does it help people? Do, med, does, do meds help people? Absolutely. There are people that need, these, need meds. The problem is, is the, uh, it's the system that des decides who's gonna get treated. And the, and the People that are treating also are mostly sincere. They're, they're in the profession to want to help others. But they have a criteria that they have to work with that's been said around money. It's about money. It's not about what do you really need. It's about money. And we've got to fix you very quickly and send you back out. Larry, thanks for joining us today. We've been visiting with Maureen and Vietnam veteran Larry Winters from his home in New Paltz, New York. As Larry has talked about the um, powerful experiences he had in Vietnam and, and uh, the experiences that Larry's had as a therapist are remarkable as well, along with his writing. And, and we're going to take enough time to really get into that. So I want to thank our audience for staying with us for let's call this part one of our conversation with Larry Winters today and invite you back as soon as it's within your schedule to join us for more of our conversation in part two with um, Larry Winters here on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our thanks to Mike Orban for recording our conversation. Minnie Kane is our editor. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is made possible by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and the Wisconsin Energies Foundation. For Aaron and Mike, this is Bob Bach. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. 
Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.